Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in a great trial of affliction the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power they were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. Insomuch that we desired Titus, that as he had begun, so he would also finish in you the same grace also. Therefore, as ye abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love to us, see that ye abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness of others, and to prove the sincerity of your love. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. You may be seated. You may remember that the last time I preached here at Weavertown, I introduced a series of sermons that I want to uh, preach or teach on um, when, it's, when I'm giving the sermon here at Weavertown. And the uh, theme or the uh, title of the uh, series would be on the spiritual disciplines. <clears throat> And I want to remind us that, at least for the purpose of this study and this series, um, I see the spiritual disciplines as activities. It is things that we actually do with our hands or speak with our mouth. It's things that we do. They are not necessarily attitudes. <clears throat> disciplines are practices. It's things that we do. Spiritual disciplines are not necessarily character qualities. They are not necessarily um, the fruit of the Spirit. They promote spiritual growth in us, though, because we train ourselves, we discipline ourselves, we put ourselves to the test, as it were, to develop and mature in Christ's likeness, to become more like Christ. The purpose of the spiritual gifts of the spiritual disciplines is so that we can become higher in our faith and our dependence on Jesus. And especially for this series, I want to uh, lift up Hebrews 12 verse 2, which is a familiar verse to us, where it says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, and he despised or ignored the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. The teaching here in the context of discipline in Hebrews 12 is that Jesus disciplined himself. Jesus exchanged shame. He ignored that. Instead, he focused on 
what was set before him. The joy, the joy that was set before him. And that's the challenge that we have that I want to leave with you as we go through this series of sermons. Today, I've chosen to speak on the discipline of generous giving. I was debating if I want to include both of those words, the discipline of giving or the discipline of generosity. I ultimately settled on including both of those words, generous giving. And I'll uh, try to, uh, yeah, my goal for this sermon is at least partially to lift up the activity, the discipline of giving. But I want to have us think beyond that because it is entirely possible to give without being generous. A person can give lots of money. A person can give lots of time and not be generous at all. A person can do lots of things and yet not be generous. So I want to uh, emphasize that aspect. Along with that, I also want us to understand, according to the passage that was read here in 2 Corinthians, there's a couple of themes that I like to want to lift out of this passage here. And that is uh, the challenge that Paul left with the Corinthians. Look at verse, verse 7 there. The Corinthians, he's already talked to them, especially through the book of 1 Corinthians. The Corinthians prided themselves in their accomplishments. They were good at speaking. They were good at doing various activities. And he says that the church in Macedonia, which is the church actually connected and alongside the passage that we're studying in our, in our Sunday school right now, the Macedonians received Paul fairly well and treated him very well. In fact, after he left there, according to this passage, they gave him a gift. And notice how he talks about that in verse 3. Their liberality or their generosity, they gave everything that they could, maybe even a little more. That's the challenge that Paul is picking up here. And he compares the Corinthians. I think the implication is that the Corinthians were sort of stingy. Their talent became a hindrance to them, and it took away from their generosity. They were so good at all of the other things that they did, they thought of them as graces and skills. And so Paul challenges them, and he says, Give, become good at giving, just like you become good at speaking or at any other gift. And then finally, Paul challenges them, and I want to leave that challenge with us today and have us understand that God is a very generous giver. He is so generous and so giving to us as his followers. <clears throat> the spiritual disciplines are habits that we form. Experiential Christianity, if you want to call it that, and I think I have at least decided to limit these spiritual disciplines to things that have been practiced by God's people. We can see it practiced in the Bible and perhaps even in the Old Testament and in Jewish and the times of the children of Israel. They've been practiced by God's people since biblical times. 
Numerous spiritual disciplines involve other people, but they are for the purpose of developing us. I engage, I discipline myself for the purpose of personal development. And as I develop myself personally, people around me become challenged to also walk in that way. Now, as I go along in this series, I want to talk about how these disciplines are to be practiced as they're taught and modeled in the Bible. But I want to try and be very practical in that, in that way to talk about how. But I especially want to emphasize and be intentional about not only talking about how, but why. Why the disciplines are taught and modeled in the scripture. What do the spiritual disciplines teach us? And I want to talk about how when the spiritual disciplines are practiced over a period of time, they change us. So today I've decided to teach on the subject of giving and generosity. For the purpose of our series, I think today I'm going to especially talk about the giving of our possessions. Uh, later, at some point, I want to talk about hospitality and fellowship, which is focused more on giving our time or giving our, um, 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 our gift of serving and those sorts of things. But more specifically today, I want to talk about giving our possessions and in, in our time and in our world, in our culture, it's very easy to especially focus that on toward giving of monies. <clears throat> Generosity in giving is actually more than just giving. It goes beyond the actual exchange of monies or possessions that you give to someone else. It changes how we think about and how we manage our monies, our resource, our resources. I think the reason that we should be generous is just simply for the fact that nothing that we own really actually belongs to us. Everything that we have belongs to God. And the Bible calls and shows that we are actually stewards of the things that God owns. It's so important for us to recognize that, to see that as we go through our lives, to have that firmly fixed and, and f- focused in our minds and in our thought processes, that we are taking care of God's things, the money, the possessions that, that we have in our control are given to us by God. And as a result of that, we are stewards of God's money, God's possessions. And it's important for us to understand that. So in the Bible, God is depicted as being sort of a host who provides for the needs of his guests. God is a host in the sense that he provided or created a place for human beings to stay, the earth. He created a world in or for us to live. And as a hospitable host, God 
gave us all kinds of things that are needed for us. Our needs are well supplied and taken care of. And as a host, he blesses us with um, things that make us comfortable and things that are enjoyable for us, and so on. He is a generous God. But it's interesting that throughout Scripture and throughout the history of the church and throughout my personal history, I tend to circle back into a mindset of scarcity where I naturally hoard things that God has given for me to enjoy, things that are designed, given by God as a gracious host that he is, and I tend to hoard or grab things for myself that are actually his. In Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, we have the story of the creation and how God produced an overabundance of value. And that's how the world is today. The, the world is run. The resources that are in the world are actually much more than we actually need. God has given us way more resources than the world can actually ever use. More than we need. And God appointed humanity in the creation to be sort of a partner or a co-ruler over the creation. And he supplies for all our needs. And in that same way, he wants us as partners with God to um, also be generous and to live by that same rule where we have more than we need. And since God is generous with the things that he's created, the purpose, the model that he gives to us is that we also should be generous with the things that we have. Now all of this sounds great until the individuals become doubtful of God's generosity. Now the Garden of Eden shows how that people become de deceived. And they become deceived by one of the ultimate lies. And the Satan, Satan used that lie in the Garden of Eden. And that lie is perpetuated all around us in our world today. Even here in Western, the Western world in America where we have so much compared to many other places in the world. The idea that God is holding out on us. That God does not give us enough. That God has not provided what we actually need. That's the lie that starts to creep into my life and our lives. And it happened to Eve and Adam. It focuses on what you don't have instead of recognizing what has been given to you. In the biblical story, humanity operates out of this distrustful scarcity mindset is what one writer calls it. A scarcity mindset focuses on what you don't have and recognizes, does not recognize what has actually been given to you. For instance, you don't have to go very far into the book of Genesis until Cain starts to focus on what he does not have. 
instead of focusing on what he actually had. Instead of focusing on the blessings that he had, he became completely, completely focused on what he didn't have and what he thought he deserved. And you see, when we become entitled, we focus on what we don't have. And the need that we feel we have becomes an absolute necessity, an essential. And when the essential, when the need that we have is not fulfilled, we start to, to focus on the people that aren't meeting that essential. And we become impossible to live in with. Cain and many other people become violent as a result of that unmet essential that we, the lie that Satan brings to us. We don't have what we need and so we start to become violent. <clears throat> Abraham in the book of Genesis used the pattern of deception as did Isaac and as did Jacob and as did Jacob's sons. And all of those studies in the book of Genesis, we can see what happens when people become trapped in this scarcity mindset. And throughout the Old Testament, God shows how that one family, the children of Israel, how he wants to bless, how God wants to bless the whole world as a result of the abundance of his gifts to one family, the children of Israel. Abraham... And the Israelite people were designed, were supposed to be vehicles by which the whole world would be blessed. However, through the Old Testament, the children of Israel, as I am tempted, became susceptible to this scarcity mindset. And they started to operate in that. And by the time the Old Testament is done, the nation of Israel is a mess. And as a result, the whole world is under, um, yeah, it, it, it was just a sad time. On a course for self-destruction. And the Old Testament concludes with that. All humanity, even the Israelites, were sitting in this mess of their own making. And so Jesus' kingdom comes along. The story of Jesus in the New Testament is actually portrayed as God's way of correcting. Again, we see God's generous gift, much more than enough, much more than needed, very generous in his giving. God gave us Jesus, his only son, his begotten son, like John 3.16 tells us. In Jesus, we can see the creator God identify with the hum human suffering and he, our, our incredible need. And so God provides Jesus as the abundant gift, way more than is necessary for any one of us, even way more than is necessary for the entire world, the whole human race. And Jesus lived here on earth, identified with the homeless and the hungry and the diseased. And he did that at least partially and extended his abundance to those people and healed them.
gave them illustrations of the abundant generosity that God had for his people. In fact, Jesus even went ultimately to the, to the cross as a result of his own people, the selfishness of his own people, who killed him, and he overcame their evil mindset with generous love for us and the power of God, by the power of God, resurrected from the dead. And he invites all of us as his followers to live in that pattern. To allow, just like Jesus was resurrected, Romans tells us, that same power is available in our lives to live like that. To live with that abundance mindset. To live with that mindset that God is a generous person and to model, we in turn model that generosity to those around us. Now Jesus spent lots of time while here on earth talking about money and possessions. In fact, I think arguably it was the number one thing that he talked about. It was the theme that he talked about most frequently in his teachings. In Luke 12, he warned, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of things which he possesseth. Instead, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6 and other places talks about how that we should invest in heavenly things. We should store up treasure in heaven because, he says, that our hearts ultimately follow the things that we value. And that's very sobering. That is just a basic law of humanity. We follow what we value. And so if we value material things, our heart follows that, just like a hound dog follows a coon. We trail that. We chase after that. If money is our important thing, we follow that and ignore, the Bible uses the word despise, the other. Matthew 6, Jesus says, For what shall it profit if a man should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Again, in the Sermon on the Mount, the, the teaching is that in serving one, we can't serve both God and money. Because in serving one, we despise or we ignore the other. Now, generosity is not just about giving because a person can give without being generous. Generosity changes the way we think about and the way we manage resources. <clears throat> now, the problem, as I see it, is not so much in the things that we have or the amount of things that we have. It's in how we think about those things and how we handle those things. And that becomes really a tightrope for us. Many times it becomes a challenge for us. Now this point is especially brought out here in Mark 12 and also in Luke 21 where the disciples and Jesus were in the temple and illustrated right in front of them was the time or the illustration was the rich men, the rich Jewish men would, were coming in, the people, the individuals, certain individuals, were bringing large gifts. 
and we're following the routine or the tradition of giving publicly, which is something that we'll talk about just a little later. But here in the temple, there was a time where people gave publicly. And so they did that. They brought large gifts, and I think they probably had ways of, of uh, letting people know that it was a large gift. Sounding the trumpet before them, like the hypocrites do. But this woman, by contrast, brought two copper coins. It was the lowest, the lowest money available, sort of like pennies in our U.S. currency. She brought two copper coins and placed those in the temporal treasury. Now Jesus watched this action and right in front of the disciples' eyes, he used it as an object lesson. He said, Truly I tell you, verily I say unto you, that this poor widow hath cast more in than all of the people that had gone ahead of her, had taken their turn ahead of her. And the reason was that she gave all. She gave all that they had. She was the generous person. The others had given lots, perhaps way more than the widow woman. But they gave out of their excess or out of their abundance. She gave all that she had. And I think this woman's amazing act of sacrifice is really a picture of the affection and the focus that we should have in regards to our material things. An act so momentous that Jesus used it as an object lesson for his disciples, and it's forever memorized in the pages of Scripture. The rest are numerous other places in the New Testament. You have this same teaching that's also given. Paul in 1 Timothy, especially verse 17 and 18, teaches the rich that they do not become so conceited in what they have that they don't fix their hope in things that are uncertain like money, but on God who gives us what we need. He instructs the rich to give to become good at giving and good works, to be generous, he says. <clears throat> Elsewhere, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, which is something that the passage that we read ahead of the, pas of the, of the sermon here, Paul challenges the Corinthians to do the same thing, to become good at giving, to become good at generosity. Just like they sought to become good at other things, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, he says, excel or become good at the grace or the gift of giving. <clears throat> I have several things here that I want to point out in relation to generosity. Number one, Generosity illustrates God's love. I've already talked about that, so I'm not going to talk just a lot more. But God's love really is immeasurable. There is no way, there is no limit, there is no, no boundary to God's love. 
And Jesus used no, numerous stories and illustrations of that. We think of the prodigal son and the father in that story. Jesus gave his one and only son, his best, his most important, his precious son as a payment for our sins. Generosity also draws me closer to God and reveals my heart. I've already talked about some of that. Where your treasure is, that were, there will your heart be also. Our life and our mindset follows what we value. And if we value material things and money, that becomes our focus. If we value God, everything else becomes second to that. We reflect the type of heart that we have by what we value and what we follow. Generosity, I feel, is the antidote for materialism. When we are generous, when we give abundantly like Christ gave, when we use all that we have as, as God's, it chases away materialism. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2, it says how that in great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. In other words, what he's saying is that all that came into their life, negative, positive, all of this sort of welled up in thanksgiving and generosity, the Macedonians did that, even in spite of all the different yeah, problems that they had and the challenges they had, they gave above and beyond. Generosity strengthens my own faith. Now, 2 Corinthians 9 continues on this same theme, especially toward the end of the chapter. If you want to make note of that, you can take a look at that sometime on your own. But it emphasizes in 2 Corinthians 9 this teaching of giving. How that when we give sparingly, we're going to reap sparingly. When we give generously, we reap generously. That same principle is in effect. And when I give, it encourages others. It blesses others. When I stick a $20 bill into somebody's car at random, it blesses them. But it actually blesses me and it strengthens my faith. My own faith becomes strengthened as a result of my deliberate and spontaneous action. <clears throat> the practice of giving our money away strengthens our faith and helps us to develop a life of generosity. Generosity is an investment in eternal things. Matthew chapter 6 talks about that. When we give our finances to ministries, it's like we're paying forward. We're investing in eternal assets that do not collect rust or, or become moth-eaten in some sort of way. We're participating in the joy of the extension of God's kingdom, locally and globally. And along with that same aspect, generosity gives me joy. Proverbs 11:25 talks about that. As we give and are generous, we tap into God's generosity, and we become a model of God's gift to others. People start to see 
how Jesus was God's generous gift to us when we are generous. I'd like to turn now and just become more practical than I've been up to this point and talk about some practical steps that we can take under the direction of the Holy Spirit, of course. Number one, I think it's important for us here this morning to take a spiritual health assessment in respect to giving. How are we doing? How are we doing? Is financial giving a spiritual habit? Are you, are you developing and flexing your muscles in relation to giving just like you would in a workout regimen or some pattern, some workout schedule that you're involved in where you focus on this muscle of giving and you become strong in that particular gift, whether you're naturally a giver or not. The command in scripture is for you to give and to do it generously. How are you doing? Perhaps, I think first of all, there's just an honesty that's required where we just sort of know, I think, naturally, we sort of have an idea how we're doing. How are we generous? Are we keeping for ourselves or are we being generous? Sometimes I think the best question is not so much what is the amount that we give, the better question is, what's the amount that we're keeping for ourselves? How are we doing? Take a spiritual health assessment. Secondly, I think it's important for us to prioritize our life so that giving becomes a habit. Just like praying or reading the Bible. We have schedules and times and yeah, Bible reading schedules that we follow. And in that same way, I think it's important for us to, to um, do that in the area of giving. You know, we all carry around this natural inclination towards selfishness, to keep for ourselves what is God's. Again, the question is not so much how much we give in amount, but how, what is the amount that we keep for ourselves. Unfortunately, it's really easy for us to buy into the world's philosophy of self-absorption because it feeds this scarcity mindset that we're enslaved by. And apart from a relationship with Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives, this lifestyle of generosity is, is probably not very possible. So we need to prioritize our schedule. We need to set goals. We need to set a pattern of how to give. Thirdly, I think it's important for us to pray and ask God for strength and opportunities. And you know, I think that's a prayer that God never resists. James chapter 1 talks about that. God gives us wisdom to make proper choices. And along with that, I think when we pray for opportunities, we become alert to opportunities that we don't see without that prayer, without development of that mindset. And there are opportunities all around us to give spontaneously, generously, and humbly. 
Lean on God. He is faithful. He will give you opportunities as you look for them, as you ask him for opportunities and for strength. Fourthly, develop a plan for giving. Kind of goes along with the previous point here about prioritizing. I have at least three things that I want to leave with you as a plan for giving. I think we should decide on a certain percentage. And you can do that at different times, but the beginning of the year when you're making your budget or beginning of a month or whenever, whenever you sit down and think about your finances, designate a minimum percentage. I think 10% is a good place to start. However, there may be times in our lives, stages, periods of, um, of our life, for whatever reason, maybe, um, maybe less is fine. But I think the tithe, as it's given in Scripture, indicates 10%. And I, I think it's good for us to, to use that as a minimum. It's found in the Mosaic Law period. And even after that, in the New Testament, we have illustrations of people giving a tithe. Whatever you do, I think it's important for us not to be legalistic about this point. But I think the key is to start and to develop a, a, a plan for giving. So begin with a certain percentage in mind and designate that percent off the top and you live on the rest, okay? Don't adjust your lifestyle or don't adjust your giving in relation to your lifestyle. Do it opposite. Adjust your lifestyle in relation to your giving. I think what's important also for us to decide what times during the month you will give. Designate it in your budget. Plan four times to give. Maybe that revolves around your pay period or whatever it is in your budget, but designate certain times, monthly, yearly, weekly. Again, the principle is to give regularly. Thirdly, decide what ministries you want to support. Now, without question, there are numerous Numerous ministries, perhaps more than ever. And it's sometimes a bit of a challenge for us to decide what is gospel-centered and what, what is actually a good ministry to give to. For myself personally, I have found over a period of time, I like to give locally. I like to, yeah, it just, I think it's more rewarding to see the money being used by organizations that, that I know and organizations that are run by people that I know. And um, yeah, you can decide how God leads you, but I think it's nice to keep the money local. To give, and the most rewarding giving that I've done is within, um, yeah, close to home, people you actually know. I think along with that, where to give and when to give. I think for most of us sitting here today, it's the Sunday morning offering, the Sunday school offering. These are, this offering schedule is designed to give you an opportunity, us an opportunity to give to organizations that we have supported in the past or are supporting currently, to needs that arise um, sometimes uh, unexpectedly. But it's, I think it's a great opportunity, and I think it's an opportunity we should use maybe mostly. In the Old Testament, I've already told you, the people publicly gave in the temple. 
It was designed that way. In the New Testament, in the book of Acts in chapter 4, they'd use the same principle. The Christians brought their gifts publicly in Acts chapter 4. I have some practical things for children. <clears throat> children typically don't have a lot of money to give, but you have other things that you can give. Now, Dave Ramsey, I think, correctly states that there are three things that children need to be taught in relation to money. And at a very young age, parents should be responsible to teach this to children. And along with that, I think you children can find ways to develop and flex this muscle of knowing how to use money. He correctly says that children should learn how to spend some of their money to pay the bills, to stay current with what they owe, to not buy more than they can pay for, to keep bills current. Along with that, you need to learn to save some. It's a, it's a muscle that we learn, that we flex, and we become good at this. And thirdly, we need to learn how to give some. Spend some, save some, give some. Now, it's easy to think that, well, we don't have much money, and so we'll just spend it on ourselves, or we'll just, um, yeah, not worry about giving. Well, like I said earlier, giving is not only in relation to money, but how you give when you're a young person, how you give when you're a child, directly translates in how you give when you actually have money. And so that's my challenge for you young people. Train yourself to notice people's needs. And become a volunteer to help those people's needs. You know, it's easy for us to sit in small circles and we talk about people's needs. And we point people's needs out to other people. How about volunteering or becoming a way to help people's needs? You becoming a person to help that person's need. Along with that, Train yourself also to notice people's strengths. I think as a young person, as a child, you can learn to compliment other people. You can give compliments, okay? You don't have money to give, but you can give compliments. Give compliments. It's like investing ahead of time. Pretty similar to how Jesus' teaching is on the giving of money. Give compliments. If a person is good at sports, compliment them. If a person has a nice set of clothing or a nice smile or something that you appreciate about them, tell them. Give compliments. <clears throat> Read a book out loud to someone younger than you. Do a small project or give a simple gift to somebody that's older than you. Fix your bed. Clean up your room. Organize your desk. Help set the table before meals and clear after meals. Freely, freely say thank you. This is something that directly translates in how you will process things that are given to you later in life. Much bigger things than the things that you're given early in life. Now for the rest of us, and as I close, I want to encourage us. I'm sorry I missed this, this screen. 
but for the rest of us, give sacrificially. I have often been challenged by the story of the Good Samaritan. And maybe just even for times like this that we're in currently. The story of the Good Samaritan is the question about how to love our neighbor as ourselves. And Jesus uses the story and talks about the priest and the Levite who were not willing to make sacrifices. They were aware of the need. They were aware of the straits that the hurt man was in. Both of them chose to follow the cultural and social pressures of their time. And they socially distanced and kept right on walking. The Samaritan, on the other hand, came where he was, the Bible says. He had compassion and he helped. He got in contact with this man's wounds. He probably got some of his blood on him. He was not a likely giver, but he gave lavishly. He sacrificed his own ride and walked instead. That doubtlessly took time and effort. When he got to the inn, he paid the cost out of his own pocket and committed to following up with the ensuing needs. All of those things represented sacrifice on behalf of the Samaritan man. And Jesus said that if you love your neighbor, that's how it's done. Sacrifice. In fact, I think it is possible to give without being generous. I think it's possible to give lots of money and not be generous one bit. But it is not possible it is not possible to be truly generous without sacrifice. And sometimes I think it's important for us to start right there by making sacrifices to intentionally and deliberately simplify our lives, to cut back, to free ourselves up in order to practice generosity. And that becomes some of the most transformative thing that can happen unto our lives. Give until you feel it. Give until it changes your schedule. Give until it changes how you live. That's where the rubber really hits the road. I close with the verse in Luke chapter 6, verse 38. And I just found it tremendously challenging it's a familiar verse, at least to me. And it's a motivation to give, and to give abundantly. But I just find it so challenging. I had never noticed the context of this verse. In Luke chapter 6, it comes in the context of judgment. It comes in the context of kindness. It comes in the context of mercy. And that's the context of this teaching. This verse is smack in the middle of verses about mercy and kindness and judgment and how it should be given. Perhaps it's an invitation for all of us to be generous in our judgment of others. We definitely value what's important to us. We definitely place a premium on our way of thinking 
And we put our own judgment on a very high level. Naturally, we do that. What would it look like to be generous in our judgment? How does it look to be generous in our mercy and our kindness to other people? How might forgiveness and the benefit of the doubt be a gift to the people in our lives? <clears throat> in conclusion, I believe that financial giving is extremely important to God. I've tried to point that out to you. But yet, I'm also equally convinced that God wants more than our money. In fact, he doesn't need our money. God, has, God does not need our money, but he wants us to give so that we become trained, so that we become reminded that all that we have, all the possessions we have are actually God's. We are the steward of them. And he wants how we give our finances to be a reflection of our heart's affection and our focus on him ultimately, what is important to us. And that's exactly what it is. How we give and how we, um, our generosity, our focus becomes a picture of what's most important to us. My prayer is that you would be motivated to give like God, to give like Christ, and ultimately that in doing so we would be changed and become developed in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. If you're able, I invite you to kneel for prayer. Lord, we come to you and ask your guidance and grace on our lives. We pray for wisdom. We pray for wisdom, uh, opportunities, and strength. Especially as we go about our lives and conduct ourselves in the coming days and weeks, I pray, Lord, that you would just give us what we need and help us to recognize that gift and to extend it to others around us. Thank you again for the gift of Jesus Christ and the abundance of grace that is poured out on the world and to us personally as a result of that gift. I pray that you would help us to daily and always be reminded of that. Give us what we need to, to, um, yeah, to live our lives in a, in a spirit of wisdom. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that guides us into all truth. And we commit ourselves to that and we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.